0: Go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles and open them up to Hebrews chapter 6. And as you do that, I want to go ahead and point out that we have three people all wearing BC shirts sitting right in a row over here. <laughs> Again, that was Hebrews chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles from the under the chairs, that's on page 1003. Alright, it's Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 this morning. Therefore... Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and that it often reminds us of how big you are and how much bigger you are than us. That it often reminds us of our uh, finite capability to understand uh, your things and your ways. And at the same time, I thank you that you've created us in such a way, and as believers, you've given us your spirit in such a way so that we can know more of who you are and what you've done for us. God, I pray that this morning, that as we look at this uh, more difficult than usual passage, uh, that... You would just bless our time together this morning. Uh, That You would empower us uh, by Your Spirit to understand Your Word together and to hear and heed its call upon us. God, I thank You for the grace of the Gospel and that uh, for those who have trusted in Christ, we are redeemed and we have hope that You uh, will enable us to endure till the end through faith and obedience. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. So last week, what we saw in the book of Hebrews as we finished out chapter 12 and started chapter 6, was the author encouraging his readers to kind of leave behind the kind of simple, elementary, fundamental doctrines of their faith and to press on toward maturity. And then we read, you know, through verse 3 of chapter 6, and then I said we kind of threw on the brakes because what comes next is this really complicated Warning passage. And so that's what we're talking about today. But what we can't miss as we kind of wade into this uh, debate in these verses is that it's connected to what we talked about last week. Verse 4 starts with the word for. He's saying because of that stuff, because of that call to press on to maturity, then comes all of what's coming next. And so the main point for us this morning is just like it was last week with kind of a little clarification at the end, and it's that we should press on to maturity so that you don't fall away and lose the possibility of repentance. That's what we are called to do. We are called to press on to maturity so that we individuals. Earlier in chapter 3, he told us it could be any one of us so that we don't fall away and lose the possibility for repentance. We must press on toward maturity. And so what we're going to do, I read these 12 verses of chapter 6. Today, we're going to focus on mainly verses 4 through 6, but we'll really walk down through the end of verse 8. And then next week, we're going to come back for part 2 and talk about what happens in verses 9 through 12. But these two things are very, 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 very closely related. In the first half of the passage, he gives us a very real and significant warning. And then the second half of the passage, he comes back and he provides us with assurance and how we can have assurance. So next week, we're going to focus more on the insurance assurance side. This week, we're going to focus more on the warning. So let's read verses four through six again. For it is impossible But even though there's three big verses, it's really quite simple what's happening. There's really just this short, concise statement that is then explained through a question about who the people it's talking about and then explained through a question of why it's impossible. And so go on to the the next slide, I think. All right. The words in red ignore, which is easy because you can't really see them anyway. The words in white, that's the short statement. That's what he's saying. He's saying, for it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. That's this point in these verses. It's impossible to restore these people again to repentance. So who is them? Go on to the next slide. Those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come. This is who it is that he's saying it's impossible to restore these people to repentance. And then they've fallen away. Next slide. Since, this is why, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Man, I can't say contempt today. This is what's happening in these verses. He's saying it's impossible to restore these people to repentance. Then he describes who the people are, and then he explains why it's impossible to restore them to repentance. That's what he's saying. But then we have to ask, what does he mean? What does this statement, that it's impossible to restore these people to repentance, mean? To answer that, we're going to ask three questions. There you go. Uh, Are the people in verses 4 and 5 that he's talking about, that he's describing, are these people believers or unbelievers? What does it mean to fall away? And then what does it mean... Uh, to be, what is impossible to restore them to repentance again mean? What do these things mean? We're going to answer these questions, and by answering these questions, then we'll be able to understand what's happening in these verses, what the warning is, and how we as believers should respond to the warning. So we'll start with the first question. Are these people that are described in verses 4 and 5 believers or not? So let's look at the descriptions one more time. I think we have them listed out up here. There you go. Have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the holy spirit have tasted the goodness of the word of god and the powers of the age to come and the question is are these describing believers or unbelievers as i mentioned at the beginning of the sermon this passage is uh, is hotly debated there are uh, very solid very smart Very conservative biblical scholars on both sides of this issue. Some guys say they're believers, some guys say they're not believers. And usually those guys agree on lots of stuff. And so whenever we see something like this in Scripture, it should cause us to to pause, to think, to study, to figure out why is this passage, why are these verses, why are these questions debated? Usually things in Scripture are are pretty clear. Sometimes it might be hard to understand words they use or why they use specific words. But there aren't a lot of issues where you see guys who normally agree disagree. There's lots of issues where you see people that normally disagree disagree. That's because they normally disagree. But here is a place where we have people that don't normally disagree disagree. And to give you an example of this, uh, some of the people, so people that say they're Christians would be a guy named Tom Schreiner, Uh, William Lane, Harold Attridge, which most of you probably don't know who any of those people are. They've written three of the most influential commentaries on the book of Hebrews. Uh, One of those guys is the head of the New Testament department at Southern, uh, where I just graduated from. So these these guys are conservative. uh, They're solid biblical scholars. On the other side, guys who say that they're not Christians would be guys like John Piper and Wayne Grudem. Grudem who wrote a big, giant book called Systematic Theology. So, you know, he knows what he's talking about. But what's interesting about the fact that these guys disagree is Schreiner, who says that they are Christians, used to teach at a seminary run by Piper, who says that they're not Christians. So even though they disagree, they have fellowship. Grudem, who says that they're not Christians, wrote an essay on this passage arguing that they're not Christians in a book that was edited by Tom Schreiner, who says that they are Christians. So they disagree, they recognize that they disagree, but they also recognize that this is a pretty complicated issue. And so it's okay to disagree and they can still have relationship with one another, still work on projects together, and even publish an essay that they disagree with in their book. So there's overlap. And so I wanna give you, as we walk through this passage, arguments for both sides. And then after we've done that, I'm gonna explain uh, which side I think is right. So, the first phrase. Let's walk through them one at a time. Have once been enlightened. This phrase describes believers. This is the side of the argument I'm giving now. Hebrews 10.32 says, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. In Hebrews 10, the author is using this very same word he's using in Hebrews 6. And it seems like he's saying... When you heard the gospel, after you heard it, you experienced suffering. So he's referring to this time in their life where they became enlightened, and after that, they suffered the reproach of the gospel. So our our author in Hebrews 6 uses the same word in Hebrews 10 to seem to say that having once been enlightened describes believing the gospel. Another factor is that he uses the word once. The fact that he says you were once enlightened, it seems to describe some sort of uh, once for all event for salvation, like regeneration. They had their eyes open, they were enlightened, and now they are enlightened. So, this phrase seems like it describes believers. What about the other side? Having once been enlightened describes almost but not quite believers. In John 1.9, we have this verse The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That phrase, which gives light to everyone, that means enlightened. It's the same word. So in John, uh, John is saying, when Jesus came into the world, he enlightened everyone. Does that mean that everyone in the world are believers? No. No. Right? It means that he increased their knowledge of who God is because he revealed more of himself by coming into the world. He revealed more of himself to some people than he did others, and that's why some people are enlightened and believe the gospel, and other people are enlightened but don't believe the gospel. So, in Hebrews, the word seems to describe believers, but elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that it describes non-Christians. Next phrase, have tasted of the heavenly gift. This phrase could describe believers. In Hebrews 2, nine. we have this. But we see him, that's Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This verse tells us that Jesus tasted death for everyone. I don't know about you, but I believe that Jesus actually died. I do not believe that Jesus almost but not quite Died on the cross. So in Hebrews 2, the author uses this word to describe Jesus tasting death as his full, complete experience of death. So in Hebrews 6, when he uses the same word to say these people have tasted the heavenly gift, he's saying that they have some sort of full and complete experience of of the heavenly gift. The heavenly gift could be justification like it is in Romans. It could be the Holy Spirit like it is in the book of Acts. But it's some sort of reality of salvation that they've experienced fully because he's saying that they've tasted it. Uh, But this phrase could also describe these almost but not quite believers. Uh, Matthew 27, 34 says this about what happens to Jesus on the cross. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So Jesus tastes the wine, tastes the gall mixed with it. This is this, uh, I think it was an herb that they would mix in with wine, and it, was, it made it bitter and sometimes even poisonous. So Jesus tastes the gall, and he refuses to drink the wine. Uh, notice the important clarifier there that it was wine mixed with gall, and that's why he refused to drink it, not just because it was wine. Um, But the point is, is that he tasted the wine, but he didn't drink it. So his experience of that wine wasn't full. It wasn't complete, just partial, right? If I told you that the other night Jen and I went out to dinner and I tasted some of her food, would you picture me eating like a forkful from her plate or would you picture me eating her entire meal, right? Taste is generally in our minds a partial experience. It's not full and complete. So those people would say that it doesn't describe believers. It describes almost, but not quite, believers. They haven't eaten the heavenly gift. They've just tasted it. Next phrase, they've shared in the Holy Spirit. Again, this could describe believers. In Hebrews 3.14, we find this verse, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Sharing in Christ is clearly here an experience of salvation. By sharing in Christ, if we hold our confidence firm to the end, we will inherit the promises of the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the author's point is in 3.14. So, those who share of the Holy Spirit in uh, Hebrews chapter 6, that's used in the same way. It's describing believers. They don't have this partial experience of the Holy Spirit. They participate in Him. They share in Him fully uh, as a benefit of their salvation. But on the other side, you could describe almost but not quite believers. In Ephesians 5, 7, Paul says this, therefore do not become partners with them. This is those who walk in darkness. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light." So Paul here is telling the Ephesians, don't participate in deeds of darkness. Don't share in them. Uh, don't partake of them. Don't have anything to do with them. Instead, be children of the light. But what if someone did? Right? What if one of the Ephesians that Paul is writing to, uh, even though they're a believer, they choose to sin. Right? They participate in a deed of darkness. Does that change who they are? Are they no longer children of light because they've done that one thing? No, right? They confess their sin, they repent, and they resolve again to walk as children of light. They don't become children of darkness because of one act of participation in it. And so, from how Paul uses the word there, we could say that he's describing some sort of incomplete, temporary, fleeting uh, participation in darkness. So, When the word is used in Hebrews 6, it could describe the same thing. It could describe this temporary, partial uh, participation in the Holy Spirit. So it could describe almost, but not quite, believers. The last phrase, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. We've already talked about what it means to taste. Right in Hebrews 2, Jesus' full and complete experience of death. And then on the other side, in Matthew 27, Jesus' partial and not complete experience of wine mixed with gall. So all of these phrases on either side uh, can be explained by how these words are used in Scripture. So which one is it? Well, for me, on the one hand, the, the fact that all of the arguments for these people being believers are examples from the book of Hebrews is really compelling to me. Because if I'm trying to understand what a specific word it means or how it's used in Scripture, the first place I'm going to look is how that word is used by that author because he's the one that's writing. And then I'm going to look at how that word is used in that book because it's that book that the word's used in. And then after that, I'm going to go out beyond that to try to figure out how it's, it's used. And so, in the same way, right, if you're trying to understand how I'm using specific words this morning, which we do that all the time, whether we realize it or not, because it happens automatically for us, you're going to think about how I normally use those words. Right? If I use the word saved... You're going to think about how I normally use that word. You're not going to go back six months to when Daniel preached another sermon and say, well, Daniel used that word that way. So that's probably how Dan is using that word this morning. You're going to think about how I use that word and then interpret what I say in the same way. And So I think uh, that the fact that the author of Hebrews uses these words fairly consistently is pretty compelling. But on the other side, It's not enough for me to shape my entire interpretation of the passage later. Uh, I'm still not fully convinced. I can't ignore the fact that the author of Hebrews uses these words this way, but I also can't ignore uh, what happens in the rest of the passage. And so I spent a lot of time as I was preparing for this sermon just kind of stuck Uh, I was confused. I didn't know where to come down. I'm like, this guy says this, but this guy says that. And, you know, Hebrews uses the word this way, but Matthew uses the word this way. And I didn't know. Uh, And then uh, I had a sort of epiphany. I had this moment of clarity where, uh, probably from the Lord, where I realized, you know, the fact that it is unclear, that, that it is inconclusive might be conclusive. And what I mean by that is that these four descriptions of these individuals aren't conclusive. Right? If, can you throw this back up? Oh, awesome. Great job, Ben. If you describe somebody in these terms and then said, is this person a believer or is this person not a believer? Our answer would be I don't know. Maybe. Like in these statements, there are strong, strong arguments to say that person has trusted in Christ. They are really a Christian. But on the other side, we could say, is this really enough? Is this enough for for me to say with confidence about someone else? Yeah, they are a believer. They will endure till the end. And so the fact that there is debate, I think rather than saying, you know, we need to press into this and write more books and do more research and try to solve this problem, I think it might be that the author of Hebrews deliberately used these phrases which could be taken either way because he wanted to tell us that this isn't enough information to decide whether or not these people are Christians. The deciding factor comes in verse 6. And then have fallen away. Right, Whether or not these people are Christians is decided by whether or not what happens in verse 6 happens to them. If they fall away, then they probably weren't truly Christians. If they don't fall away, Jesus tells us in Matthew that those who endure to the end will be saved. And so we absolutely will have confidence that they were believers because they endured till the end. The problem is that we want to start in the wrong place. We want to start at the end of the story, and you know, if we believe that you can lose your salvation, we're going to say, yeah, these people in verses 4 and 5, they're absolutely believers, and then they fall away and they lose their salvation. So the, this passage just confirms what I already think. Or if we don't believe that you can lose your salvation, we're going to say, well, they fall away in verse 6. So clearly, they're not Christians, because that would mess up my theological system that I already have in place. So I think the fact that these descriptions are vague means that we don't have enough information. And the reason why is because we're looking at this from a finite, incomplete perspective. Whereas God looks at this and sees the beginning and the end. You know, if we were to uh, throw up scores from our game, our second game the other night in softball, so, for example, I think at the end of the third inning, we were down 14-0. You would say, absolutely, BC's losing this game. They normally lose to this team. They're down 14 runs. After this point, they're clearly going to lose. They won't win it. But then, they didn't score any more runs. And in the bottom of the seventh, it was 12-14. to So if we threw that score up and said that we had... I think one out, or maybe no outs, and it was twelve to fourteen. You would maybe think, well, hey, BC is going to pull this out. Dan wouldn't be telling this story if there wasn't a happy ending. Clearly, BC wins. It's twelve to fourteen in the seventh inning. But we lost, fourteen to twelve. <laughs> and like now, I know that's what happened. But at different points in the game, we don't know how it's going to end, and that's where we are. Like so, if verses 4 and 5 are true about us, it might mean that we're believers. It might mean that we're not believers. The deciding factor is whether or not we fall away. And God sees that. He he knows. And so He looks back and knows whether verses 4 and 5 mean that we're believers or not. But we can't have that information and we don't have that information. And that's why this warning carries weight. Because He's saying... For these people who have these things in verses 4 and 5 true about them, if they then fall away, it's impossible, impossible to restore them to repentance. That's what he's telling us in verses 4 and 5. So these are these people believers, unbelievers? It depends on whether or not they fall away. That's the answer to question number one. Question number two If it's impossible to restore these people to repentance if they fall away, then we should probably know what it means to fall away so that we don't do it. So question two is, what does it mean to fall away? Is there already the definition up there? Awesome. Falling away is a continual determined rejection of God. It's a continual determined rejection from God. Listen to this passage from Ezekiel 18, verses 24 and 25. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. When Ezekiel is later translated into Greek from Hebrew, this word, turns away, is translated using the same exact word the author of Hebrews uses to describe what it means to fall away. It's like this is a good... Do we have that verse on the slide? There we go. So this picture is a good picture of what it looks like to fall away. When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness, he does injustice. He says the same abominations that the wicked person does. Shall he live? He's saying, I don't want to live like a righteous person anymore. I want to live like everyone else. It's not some, you know, periodic or uh, it's not a moment of weakness for him. He's making a choice. He's making a commitment to forsake his righteousness and walk away from the Lord. It's continual. It's consistent. It's decided and fixed in his mind, this is what I'm doing. And I think that that should comfort us. Because when people talk about losing their salvation, they talk about how, like, about it like it could happen at any moment. You know, like this week, we, we actually lost our keys to our car at our house. And it was the only set we had, and we couldn't find them. I looked everywhere uh, and then found that Jen had lost them when we just assumed that it was me because I lose things. I misplaced my wallet and books and papers on my desk and files on my computer and all kinds of stuff. But I can't do that with my salvation. right? I can't just forget it at a restaurant or not know what I did with it when I come in the house. Because it's a gift that's given to me by God that's part of my identity. It's who I am. And that can't just be forgotten about or lost by accident. Falling away is a committed decision to forsake God. He gives us some more clarity on this in verses 7 and 8. He says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But, on the other hand, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. He's saying exactly what Jesus is saying in the Gospels you'll know them by their fruit. What they produce reveals who they are. Those who fall away are going to produce bad fruit. Those who endure to the end are going to produce good fruit. And that will tell us whether or not the people in verses 4 and 5 are Christians or not. So this is what falling away is. It's this determined continual rejection of God. This brings us to question 3. Right? If These people, when they fall away, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. We know what it, who they are. We know what it means to fall away. But what does it mean that it's impossible to restore them to repentance? Honestly, I think this is the easiest part of the whole passage. Like it seems really harsh. It seems kind of complicated because of the description he gives about you know, Jesus not being able to be crucified again. But really, it's quite simple. If they make the decision to fall away from God, they decide I'm going to reject him and who he is and what he's done for me. What they're saying is I don't want any part of God. I don't want any part of Christ. I don't want any part of the gospel. I don't want any part of the grace that he's given me. I reject all of that and I walk away from it. That means that there's no opportunity for them for repentance. Repentance. Because they've just rejected the only opportunity there is. There is no opportunity for repentance outside of Christ. And so if they reject him and walk away from him, there is no, more, uh, no longer any opportunity for them to repent because they've denied it. They've rejected it and they resolve to keep rejecting it for the rest of their life. So what are they going to turn to? Nothing. And that's why he gives this description of it. This is the explanation of why it's impossible to restore them to repentance. For it is impossible, uh, verse 6, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Christ can't be crucified again. Right? Later in Hebrews, he's going to tell us it's a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. So if they reject that sacrifice, they walk away from it, in order for them to have another opportunity to repent, Christ would have to die again. He would have to be held up to shame and contempt again in order to provide them with another opportunity that they haven't rejected. But he's saying that's not possible. Christ died once for all, and if they reject that one opportunity, there's not another one. And I don't mean they reject it once, but I'm not saying that if you share the gospel with someone and they say, no thanks, that they're in that group. This is someone who said, I don't want the gospel. I don't want the gospel. I don't want the gospel. And they keep saying it forever. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And so if they reject the name of Jesus, they reject salvation forever. If they reject him forever. That's what it means to that it's impossible to restore them to repentance. It seems harsh, But what he's really saying is there's only one way of salvation and it's Jesus. So, in this passage, he's saying that the true test of who is a Christian and who is not a Christian is whether or not they endure to the end. And if we fall away, if we continually decide to reject God, it will be impossible for us to be restored to repentance because it's the only opportunity for repentance we have in Christ. So this passage gives... I think, a huge warning to us. That if we reject God, it's impossible for us to be restored to repentance. And it also gives us a big warning in that these four things that it, he he says these people experienced before they fell away, those are good things. Can you put up that list again? I want these things to be true of me. Right? I want to be someone who... Uh, has shared in the Holy Spirit, who's tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Like, I want people to look at my life and say, like, I think he's a believer because I see all of these things. But at the same time, I think that these people experienced all of those things and they still fell away. And so that could be true of us this morning. We could be someone who's described like that in verses 4 and 5. But whether or not we've fallen away, we don't know. We won't know that till the end. And so we should feel that warning and feel that weight and think, I don't want to be someone who falls away. I want to be someone that presses on to maturity. And so the way we should respond to that is with obedience and walking out the salvation that we've been given, bearing the fruit that he talks about in verses 7 and 8. Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the assurance that we can have that we are truly Christians. But today, I think it's good for us to feel this weight. This is a real warning. and I think that a lot of times we can take the sting out of passages in Scripture and say, well, you know, like it says this, but like that's not really what it means. Like we we like, we know that this isn't true of us. So I don't really need to worry if I fall away because I'm not going to fall away. It's not going to happen. But this is a real warning with real danger because we don't know whether or not we will now. But I, I hope that my future is filled with Endurance. And I hope that if ever at any moment in my future, it looks to you like it's not, that you come and call me to press on toward maturity. But I don't know what it holds. And it's easy to take these passages and talk about them in the abstract and read about them in books without thinking about specific people. And so I was reminded last week of a, of a point in my life where... Um, some guy, at, it was actually at the intern training that the Missouri Baptist Convention put on. And there was a, a mentor who like had, had had interns at his church for years and years and years and years and years. And he talked about this, these people that uh, were interns and now just aren't believers. Um, and it reminded me of a point in my life where I did this internship in Houston, Texas with a handful of people, uh, most of whom are in ministry now. One of them is Janelle's sister. Another one of them was an elder at this church before. Um, One guy's a pastor in St. Louis. One guy uh, does ministry elsewhere. They're, They're all, almost all, doing ministry, but there's one who's not. And I remember a phone conversation with this person where they said, you know, I just don't think it's true anymore. And then said... I'm making a choice to go a different direction. And I have. And like I look back on that summer and think, we experienced the Lord together in ways that I haven't since. We saw Him do things as we ministered to people in ways that I haven't since. How could you look at those things and say, like it's not true. And they have. And I don't know that years from now, or maybe this year, that person won't come back and press on to maturity. The Lord knows I don't. But in 2002, as we're doing ministry together, as we're talking about the gospel together, I never would have thought that that later phone conversation would happen. And because of that, I feel the weight of this warning. And you should too. Because we don't know what's coming next. And so today, we should feel the call of the author of Hebrews to press on toward maturity. To leave behind the elementary doctrines of our faith. And grow toward maturity in Christ. And the way we do that is together by encouraging one another. He's going to talk more about that later in the book. Next week, we'll come back and we'll talk more about what assurance is and how we have it. But I hope that even as we do that, that we don't lose this warning. That we don't just shrug it off and say, that's not me now, that's not going to be me later but instead would use it as motivation to press into the things of God, to press into the body of Christ for encouragement and instruction and, and growth. Because that's how we press on toward maturity, in community together. Not on our own, not in isolation. And so, as we take the Lord's Supper today... I just want to remind you of what he talked about in in verse 3 last week as we finished, that we'll do these things, we'll press on toward maturity if God permits. I would encourage you just to spend this time in prayer, uh, asking the Spirit to use this warning to motivate you to press on toward maturity. And at the same time, that the Spirit would empower you and everybody around you to do that too. That we would press on toward maturity, that we would not fall away that we wouldn't forsake the grace that we so love today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that as a good father, you warn us for our good. That you warn us of real danger. I pray that that warning would motivate us toward obedience. Not out of fear, but out of thanksgiving for the fact that you are a good Father who loves us and who cares about what's best for us. God, I pray that you would send your spirits to help us as as individuals and as a church to be those who press on toward maturity. I pray that we would recognize the very real possibility that some of us might fall away. And at the same time, I pray that none of us would. I pray that as we, Jesus, celebrate your death together this morning that we would just be reminded again that we truly have been saved from our sins and freed from sins and slaving power. And that both our failings and our successes are paid for by the cross. And because of that freedom that we have in you, that we would press on toward maturity in obedience, responding to the grace you've shown us, Pray now that you would move in us.